Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. This is part two of Destination Portland, Maine. If you haven't listened to part one, please do. We are now at a point where the primary suspect has left for Alabama and the Maine State Police and the Portland Police are continuing their search for Amy. In early December, Lieutenant Patrick Dorian from the Maine Warden Service called the Maine State Police and offered to help with the investigation of Amy St. Laurent. He believed the Warden Service could use their expertise to help with search and rescue to find Amy's body. At this point, Detective Young had been working nonstop for six weeks and really appreciated the offer for help. One of the reasons the Warden Service had offered to do this is that they had an ability to see things that police wouldn't. They were trained to see things like broken twigs or freshly walked on dirt or... Yeah, the natural environment was the place in which they were used to searching. Right, and you wouldn't expect city detectives to have that same skill set. Precisely. On December 3rd, Lieutenant Pat Dorian brought wardens from his team, which included a mapping and GPS expert, Kevin Adam, to the Portland Police Department for a meeting. The Portland Police, the State Police, and the Warden Service had never teamed up like this before. The wardens ran the meeting with Lieutenant Dorian and his team gathering as much information about the circumstances as they could. Detectives Young and Heracles presented the case and were questioned by the warden service who wanted to gather a profile of the victim and the suspect, along with theories about what they thought had happened that night. From the profile, using maps and GPS equipment, it was determined what routes Gorman would have likely taken. The wardens would then take this design search criteria based on their knowledge of Gorman's character, his experience, and familiarity with the area. Because of recent training, the wardens knew general information about killers and specific statistical information. For example, they knew in a body dump situation, 72% of victims were fewer than 200 feet from a parking lot. That's crazy. I know. Isn't that interesting information? But it kind of makes sense when you think about it. It does. It does. People want to, well, how many people like to go into the woods and dig or live near a woods? Right. Or go in at night, which sounds super scary to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they also know there's typically a sense of panic after a killing, which would affect the location and breadth of the search area. The wardens asked many questions, one of which would prove pivotal and slightly shift the search criteria. Did Gorman have access to a shovel? Detectives Young and Heracles set about finding the answer. Two days after the meeting with the wardens, detectives interviewed Richard DeVoe. Now, this is the boyfriend of Russ Gorman's mother, Tammy. 
Richard told the detectives that around the time Amy disappeared, Gorman asked if he could borrow a shovel because he was going to help a friend put in a fence. Richard directed Gorman to a shovel and a post digger, but later Richard noticed that the post digger had not been touched. And that's what you need to actually dig the holes, correct? D- like a post, shovels. exactly. Yes, I, ha- I had big mounds of dirt. Right. I had to ask my husband that question. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> Anyway, so Richard notices that the digger had not been touched, but he didn't know about the shovel. So detectives could not find a friend who needed a fence installed. They also knew that Gorman was lazy, unhelpful, and generally dedicated to avoiding physical work. Hmm. I know. The next day, detectives received another critical piece of information. Detective Young had put in an FBI request for a search of records concerning Russ Gorman through NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Computer. The detectives found out that at 3.14 a.m. on the night of Amy's disappearance, Gorman was pulled over in a neighboring city by an officer named Tim Gardner for high beam violations. They also found out that this stop was eight minutes long. Was he alone in the car? He was alone in the car. So the exhausted detectives now realize they have objective evidence that Gorman, Cook, and Sharma were all lying about his whereabouts. How excited were the police when they found this? And oh my God, that took a long time to get. Can you imagine? I mean, this this is such pivotal information. On Saturday morning, December 8th, over 100 people, including the warden's team, state police, Portland police detectives, 45 search and rescue volunteers from the Maine Association of Search and Rescue, and 10 canines showed up to search for Amy's body. Some of the volunteers had even slept overnight in a gym at the Portland police station. That's dedication. Absolutely is. They assembled at two locations and were given copies of flyers with Amy's picture, a description of her clothing that night, as well as the fact that Gorman had access to a shovel, alerting them to the possibility that Amy might be buried. Now, Kath, do you remember reading what she was wearing that night? I remember it was casual clothing. It was. It was a sweatshirt, a pair of jeans, and tennis shoes. Yes, yes. yeah. Like it was clear that she was, they were just sightseeing. Exactly. They didn't stop at home. She clearly wasn't looking for like some grand night out on the town. Right. And when she went to Pavilion, that was... Like going to a dance club was by pure happenstance. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. she had better shoes to go to a dance club, but you certainly aren't (laughs) dressed like probably a lot of the people there would have been. But that's shoes for our age. Yes. (laughs) Young people would be like, tennis shoes at a dance club? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You're so lame. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Yes. (laughs) Accepted. It was agreed by the searchers that they would use a phrase when they discovered Amy's body because they knew that the media were listening on scanners. They knew something big was going on because obviously this assembly of all these different first responders, but they didn't want the news media to get to the scene before they were able to verify, lock it down and all of that. So they decided to use the phrase code blue. Throughout the morning, search and rescue teams worked through the sites on their maps The Mahusik Mountain Search and Rescue Team arrived to begin their search at about 1 o'clock p.m. of an overgrown road extending approximately 200 yards off State Route 22, which at this location only had one lane in each direction. Now remember, these are people who are used to searching for people who were lost but alive, and the Mahusik team came into the operation with a skeptical mindset, feeling searching for bodies wasn't within their purview. However, They were inspired by Lieutenant Pat Dorian's enthusiasm to bring in their expertise and help. 
Armed with the information that they might be looking for a grave that had been dug with a shovel, the Mahusik team began walking in the methodical pattern the way they were trained. At about 1.30 in the afternoon, the team entered an area with open ground, but also with pine trees that had pine branches just above ground level. Landon Fake, a member of the Mahusik search and rescue team and an administrator with the Hurricane Island Outward Bound School, noticed the soil in front of him looked slightly depressed. He saw dead pine needles scattered over the ground, and he saw that live pine branches were underneath the dead pine needles that had been scattered. He immediately knew that someone had been digging there recently. Now, this is the kind of thing that I, in a million years, wouldn't notice. But Never. He, he was like, why are there dead needles on top of a live pine branch? Right. And, and again, Lieutenant Pat Dorian had a brilliant idea. Of bringing in the wardens. Right. I love it. Closer examination revealed shovel marks. The area of disturbed ground was approximately six to seven feet in diameter, and it was topped by sod that had been cut into pieces one at a time. Landon Fake pointed out his observations, and Portland Detective Gary Thorpe, who was with the search team at the time, acknowledged that this looked wrong. The Mahusik Mountain Search and Rescue Team was immediately moved out of the area, and Detective Young was called to the scene. When he got there, he dug a small hole that was a couple of feet deep and reached his hand in, and he felt the fabric of a sweatshirt. He knew it was time to call a code blue. The site was now a crime scene, and he knew that without the cooperation and expertise of the Mahusik Search and Rescue Team, they never would have gotten to this point. Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Margaret Greenwald and her deputy, Dr. Ed David, as well as Dr. Marcella Sorg, a forensic anthropologist, began their work. The scene was documented, measured, photographed, videotaped, combed for evidence, and the dirt was sifted. They were hoping to find hair, clothing, and anything else that may provide clues. Metal detectors were used. Even maggots were collected in the hope that a forensic entomologist could determine the length of the time the body had been there. When they finally uncovered the body 23 inches below the surface, the Pratt and Whitney sweatshirt logo was visible. Amy's hands and feet were covered with brown paper bags with the hope of preserving any evidence they might contain. And at the request of Detective Young, her ankle was wiped clean, uncovering a dolphin tattoo. It was definitely Amy, and Detective Young informed her father who was waiting at the end of the road. After midnight, the final officers and the forensic teams began to disperse. Just then, the snow started to fall. In the book, Finding Amy, the authors summed up everyone's emotions perfectly. Quote, tired, they stared at the snow and looked at their watches and found confirmation for their belief that for that whole day they had received the gift of divine intervention. Someone had sent the wardens, held off the snow, given them the faith and patience and willingness to come out this day in search. If they hadn't found Amy that day, they might not have had another chance to search until spring, end quote. I love that quote in the book because I think it expressed everyone's fear that they had had from the beginning. They were expecting snow. Actually, it's already the 9th of December and it hasn't snowed yet in Maine. Mm -hmm. But they knew once the first snow started falling, they were done for months. Yeah, exactly. So the next day, which was a Sunday at 9 a.m., the medical examiner scheduled the autopsy. Now, detectives routinely appear for autopsies, and Amy's case, of course, was no exception. Amy's sweatshirt and bra were pushed up above her breasts, and her underpants were rolled down around her ankles. 
After Amy's body hair and fingernails were collected, the body was washed so the skin could be examined. Through the autopsy, the doctor learned that prior to her death, Amy had been severely beaten about the head and face. Her skull showed evidence of several blows and one of the bones in her face was broken. Her lip was swollen and cut and one tooth was freshly chipped. Behind her left ear, there was a large hole, which doctors later determined was from a gunshot wound. Detective Young returned from the autopsy to find that a former friend and neighbor of Gorman's mother had called. The woman's name was Mary Young, and she lived in Florida. Mary informed Detective Young that Tammy had called her in distress, saying that Gorman had told her that his roommates, Kush Sharma and Jason Cook, left their apartment with Amy on the night she went missing. They were gone for several hours, and upon returning, Sharma and Cook told Gorman that they had killed Amy. They then asked him where there was a good place to hide the body, and Gorman said that they had threatened him and his family, so he directed them to the wooded area near a pond behind his mother's house where they dumped the body and then later went back to bury it. According to Mary Young, Gorman then spoke with his mother a second time. She asked him questions about the stories in the paper and what he had told her didn't add up and that he needed to tell her the truth. He said, Mom, I did it. I killed that girl. He described walking with Amy by the lake and becoming enraged about something she said and pulling out a gun and shooting her in the head. He told his mother that when he was beating and killing Amy, he was actually seeing his mother's face. How'd you like to be the mom who hears that? No, thank you. Yeah. Three days after Amy's body was found, Gorman's mother then called Mary Young and repeated the conversation about her son killing Amy. Mary had told Detective Young this story three days after Amy's body had been found. She also told the detective that Gorman's mother had then also called an Episcopal priest in Florida named Father Fred Basil and told him the exact same story about her son's confession. At the time Mary had been telling this to Detective Young, he had been in a meeting with the Attorney General's Office, State Police, and Portland Police being briefed on the autopsy findings. When Detective Young went back to the meeting, he repeated the murder confession to the group. No official cause of death had been announced, and the medical examiner had not released the information that Amy had died from a gunshot wound. This is only something the killer would have known. Gorman, who, as you know, is in Alabama at this time, was becoming increasingly erratic. He still had friends and family in Maine who were keeping him apprised of what was being stated in the newspapers. He was telling people in Alabama that he was not going to be taken alive by the police, and he began carrying a gun. Three days after Amy's body was found, Gorman was in a fast food parking lot and pulled a gun on a man because he was staring at Gorman. That's rational. Exactly. And, and what was funny was like, this was like a football coach. <laughs> like this guy was not intimidated. So he was looking for a fight. He, you know, or he goes, what you going to do about it? Like it was one of those kind of things. <laughs> Anyway, so then Gorman pulls out a gun. Anyway, so the man calls the police after the confrontation, described the vehicle, which was a red Dodge Neon with main license plates. And because he was on probation, Gorman wasn't supposed to be toting around a gun. So the Troy, Alabama police were asked to arrest him and hold him for return to Maine. Now, the Troy police set up surveillance of the vehicle and followed it. But when they pulled it over, Gorman was not inside. The driver informed the police that Gorman was hiding in the attic of the residence where the car had been parked. Detective Sergeant Callista Everidge of Troy Police was in communication with Portland detectives at this time. She ordered the arrest of Gorman. 
when Troy officers arrived at the home where Gorman was hiding, Gorman did not make things easy for them. He held two loaded guns to his head, threatening to kill himself. After a five and a half hour standoff, Gorman put down one of the guns in exchange for a soda, then gave up the other one in exchange for a cigarette. The Troy police took him into custody without a shot being fired and with no injuries to anybody. Detectives Young and Heracles were notified of the arrest. So I don't know a lot about like hostage situations, like self-imposed hostage situations, but giving the guns up for a soda and a cigarette tells me he was never serious about it in the first place. Or they just wore him down with time. I'm sure they de-escalated. Whatever the Troy police did, they did it right. Yes. With Gorman in custody, detectives knew they only had a 24-hour window of opportunity to interview Gorman face-to-face before Maine's probation and parole officers arrived to bring him back to the state. They knew that once he was in Maine, he would lawyer up and not give an interview, so the detectives knew they needed to get to Alabama, and their superiors agreed. Then, Detective Heracles surprised everybody by announcing that he would not fly. Remember, this was only two months after 9-11, and for those of you who don't remember, Mm -hmm. people were scared to get on an airplane. Yeah, there was a moratorium on flying for a while, but even after that was lifted, people were like, no, I don't think I want to take that trip. Right. Not only did he have a wife and two young children to think about, but he'd also recently had a bad experience in a plane, so he was not about to get on another plane. Because Heracles knew everything about the case, witness statements, timeline, autopsy results, he had to be there. So he and Detective Young decided they were going to drive down to Troy, Alabama. This isn't a short trip, and remember, they have a 24-hour window. The drive to Troy, Alabama took 20 hours. They needed to lock down Gorman's story again and see his reaction to some of the newly discovered information. Because remember at this point, although they had interviewed him before, they now know he was pulled over at 3.15 in the morning. So his timeline of events doesn't hold up anymore. Right. They want to lock him into the lie that he stayed in the apartment. Right. Detective Sergeant Everidge facilitated a recorded interview. And during that interview, he again reiterated his original timeline and his accusations against Jason Cook and Kush Sharma. Predictably, when the questioning got tough, he invoked his right to counsel and did the interview. Detective Sergeant Everidge, who knew everyone in Troy on a first-name basis, secured the cooperation of many witnesses who were interviewed by Detectives Young and Heracles during their stay. Some made incriminating statements against Gorman, but were deemed to be too unreliable to bring to trial. The Portland detectives left Troy, Alabama with an even clearer picture of who Russ Gorman was. On December 14th, 2001, one week after her body was found, Amy St. Laurent's family and friends gathered in the chapel at the Conway Tully Funeral Home in South Portland to hold a memorial service. A large framed photo of Amy was placed on the table with pink roses, evergreens, and 25 white candles symbolizing every birthday. Amy's mother, Diane Jenkins, told listeners that her daughter would rather celebrate her life than dwell on how it ended. Her mother read the prayer of St. Francis, which she believed summed up her daughter's life. And you probably heard it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. It's a really beautiful prayer. Stories were told and Amy was celebrated as the generous and loving young woman she was. Reverend Eric Kelly urged his listeners to honor Amy's memory by making choices that would make the world a safer place for themselves. 
Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Meanwhile, Portland detectives and state police searched for the gun that killed Amy and awaited the findings of the forensic analysis performed on the evidence collected. In early January of 2002, detectives met at the medical examiner's office. Remember, although they knew that Amy had died of a gunshot wound, they did not have a bullet and they did not have a gun. Lab tests confirmed the presence of chemicals on the skull that would have come from being shot. Other broken bones in her chipped tooth suggested that she'd been struck by some objects. But detectives were dealt a blow when none of Gorman's DNA was found on any of the objects that had been tested. In Maine, all homicides are prosecuted by the Maine Attorney General's office, and assigned to this case was Deputy Attorney General William Stokes and Assistant Attorney General Fernand La Rochelle. Both men had significant experience prosecuting homicide cases. Detectives Young and Heracles had consulted with them from the beginning of this investigation on the legality of proposed searches and the language they used in the warrants to make sure that there wasn't some technicality that tripped them up when they went to trial. That was very smart. Absolutely. Stokes and La Rochelle now began preparing to take the case to the grand jury to get an indictment for murder. The primary reason they wanted to take the case to the grand jury rather than get an arrest warrant is they wanted to get Tammy Westbrook, remember she's Russ Gorman's mother, to testify on the record. As we mentioned earlier, they'd heard the confession Tammy had told her friend Mary Young. The grand jury process is a secret process, and other than the citizen members of the grand jury, no one is present except for the presenting witness, this is the person testifying on the record, the prosecuting attorney, and in Maine, if it's authorized by a judge, a court reporter. No members of the public are present, nor is the suspect or his or her attorney. 
Exactly. And the purpose of the grand jury is to say, is there sufficient evidence to charge this person with a crime? And this is super smart what they did because this is all happening very quickly, this investigation. And Mary Young knew that her friend Tammy was very conflicted about bringing her son forward. So striking while the iron's hot and getting her testimony while she still has a conscience is important because as time goes by, people's emotions simmer down and they start behaving in a way that is consistent with whichever side of the story they want to support. So here she was. She was still emotional. She was still conflicted. So while she's having this conscience crisis, they want to get her on the record. Very smart move. So as we mentioned previously, Tammy told the story to Mary Young as well as a priest, Father Fred Basil. However, their testimony would have been hearsay. They would have been repeating something that Gorman told his mother. So the prosecution needed to get it from the horse's mouth. Gorman's mother, Tammy, could testify about what Gorman said to her. Even though she's technically repeating something somebody else said, which we know is hearsay, there's an exception to the hearsay rule, which is an admission. So his confession is an admission that could be used against him. And his mother was the direct source of that information, not Mary Young and not Father Fred Basil. Prior attempts to appeal to Tammy's conscience hadn't worked. As you know, Detective Heracles and Young worked very hard, and they had met with Tammy on a number of occasions. And sometimes they felt like she was on the cusp of telling the truth, but then she would say something like, but this is my son. And so she never admitted it. So on February 2nd, 2002, Detective Heracles served a grand jury summon on Tammy Westbrook. When he did this, he reminded her that a grand jury proceeding was a very serious matter and she could not tell anything but the truth and that lying could make her subject to perjury charges. After Detective Heracles told her this, Tammy said she did not believe her son had committed the crime and Heracles responded, he did it, he told you he did it. Tammy told Detective Heracles that she would not show up, and he said she would be arrested if she didn't. So Tammy Westbrook did show up at the grand jury, but as prosecutors expected, she refused to testify. Prosecutors then took her before a judge, a Superior Court justice, who told her she had an obligation to testify truthfully, but he gave her the opportunity to consult an attorney about her rights and obligations. So she returns the following day and brought with her an attorney. The prosecutor then sat her down with her attorney and played the videotapes of their interviews with Tammy's friends, Mary Young and Father Fred. Her attorney then told her she had no grounds to refuse to testify. So she went before the grand jury that day. Just as they had hoped, at this point, Tammy decided to tell the truth. And she recounted the entire conversation where her son admitted to shooting Amy. On Friday, February 8th, 2002, the Cumberland County Grand Jury returned an indictment that stated, on or about the 21st day of October 2001 in the County of Cumberland, State of Maine, Jeffrey Gorman did intentionally or knowingly cause the death of Amy St. Laurent. Before the trial began, Deputy Attorney General Stokes received a message from a Portland attorney named Dan Lilly, who Tammy Westbrook had hired to represent her. Unsurprisingly, Tammy didn't want to testify at her son's trial. Lilly said he couldn't believe that they were going to call Gorman's mother to testify against him at a murder trial. Jury selection began on January 10, 2003, 15 months after Amy St. Laurent disappeared. Three days later, trial began with Justice Nancy Mills presiding. 
One of the most frustrating things for the prosecution was that there were so many things that had been deemed prejudicial that they weren't able to speak about it in court to really show jurors the true picture of Russ Gorman. They couldn't bring up his criminal history, which was extensive. They would not hear that he'd assaulted his mother during a screaming fight. They could not be told that he'd punched and kicked his pregnant girlfriend and none of the women he drugged and violated would be allowed to testify. In an Associated Press article that ran in the Bangor Daily News, prosecutors acknowledged that no physical evidence linked Russ Gorman to the murder of 25-year-old Amy St. Laurent. So after all of that evidence collection, there was no DNA of his, no semen, and not a single hair. And no gun and no bullet. Assistant Attorney General Fernand de La Rochelle said in his opening statement that without physical evidence, including the murder weapon, the case against Gorman would be circumstantial. And remember, sometimes circumstantial evidence can be stronger than direct evidence. Like, for example, eyewitness testimony is direct evidence, but that's not always the most reliable thing. Right. I mean, and the jury can deem them not credible, too. Right. Through the course of trial, prosecutors produce many witnesses to talk about timeline, motive, opportunity, etc., including friends of Gorman who said he had wanted to have sex with Amy on the night she disappeared. Additionally, Dr. Greenwald, the chief medical examiner, took the stand to describe the exhumation and autopsy of Amy's body and describe her cause of death. Along with describing the gunshot wound and Amy's other injuries, Dr. Greenwald spoke about the insect larvae found with the body. The larvae played a crucial evidentiary role in establishing a timeline for Amy's death and subsequent burial. I found this fascinating because they collected essentially adult larvae and baby larvae. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it. But what they did with the adult larvae or the adolescent pupae. larvae, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the pupae, they put it in alcohol and glycerin in order to kill it and preserve it. And then with the babies, they basically let them grow to the point where they were the same size as that which they had preserved. And that would have been the length of time that she was buried. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it's fascinating to me. So anyway, they knew based on some of the insect larvae that they found that she had been above ground for a certain period of time. They estimated it was 12 to 24 hours. And with the, with the growth of the other larvae, they said, okay, this is consistent with her being underground for approximately six weeks. And you know, that also makes sense too, because remember when the Mahusik search team was there, they brought dogs in to identify the site before they started digging anywhere. And independently, two trained canines first stopped at a tree and then went over about six or seven feet away and indicated that was a spot where there was a dead body. So she was probably by that tree. Exactly. He left her outside there and then came back later at a more convenient time to, to bury her. Right. Now, the most pivotal witness during the guilt phase was Russ Gorman's mother. So on the first day of trial, Tammy brings in an attorney who says, hey, judge, I want to quash the subpoena against Tammy. She doesn't have any recollection and she wants to be in the courtroom during her son's trial. Because when, you ha when you're a subpoenaed witness, you don't get to sit and watch the proceedings because, you know, people don't want your testimony affected. Everything has to be pure. So right. you, you, get, you have to stay outside. And the judge is like, no, 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 no. We're not going to quash the subpoena. We'll deal with this later. So the next day, after already being shot down once by the judge, her attorney comes back and renews his attempt to quash the subpoena. She really, 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 really wants to be in court during the trial. 
Right. He says she's not competent to testify. She has no recollection of what her son told her, nor does she recall the grand jury proceedings. Something like that. So he says not competent, doesn't recall. The judge decides that she has the authority to question Tammy Westbrook, along with Tammy's attorney, as well as the prosecutors, and determine whether or not she is fit to provide evidence. Exactly. She's basically trying to decide, is she qualified as a witness? So the judge was super smart in the way she conducted things. The pivotal conversation between Russ Gorman and his mother, where he admitted to shooting Amy, occurred on December 9th. So the judge asks Tammy to describe what medication she's on. She asks her questions about her medical history. She asks her about her address. She, she asks her all of these factual questions, which Tammy is able to answer. Well, and she was also able to say what happened the day before yep. and the day after. Yes, she was able to give details of conversations she had with detectives on December 8th. And she was able to give information about what she did on the 10th. So she is saying she has post-traumatic stress disorder, severe depression and anxiety, and she has absolutely no recollection of what her son had told her. She also said she had absolutely no recollection of testifying before the grand jury. Exactly. That's convenient memory. Right. And by the way, this is probably all happening outside the earshot of the jury. So this is the judge is holding this hearing to decide, is Tammy competent to testify? And she ultimately decides she is. And she basically says, like, all of her answers are responsive, and it shows a woman who actually has a recollection of many, many things. So she decides that Tammy has to testify, and the jury gets to weigh Tammy's credibility themselves. Tammy Westbrook takes the stand, and both the prosecution and the defense will be allowed to question her. When the prosecution questions her, they ask her about what her son had told her. She sticks to her original story and says... He told me that he dropped Amy off at the pavilion around 2 a.m. and then he went home. Because she says this, the prosecution then wants to refresh her memory about what she had said to the grand jury. So they show her a transcript of her grand jury testimony and ask her, does this look familiar? Do you remember seeing all of these? And she says, nope, don't recognize it at all. She said it was like reading a book. I have no memory. Didn't she say something like yeah, that? Yeah, she it did. Was, it was like reading a book. I don't know what this is about. Right. <laughs> I don't know how it ends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since they can't refresh Tammy's memory, the prosecution wants to introduce the transcript into evidence. So they call the court reporter to the stand to authenticate the transcript. While he's on the stand, the defense attorney, what's he doing, Kath? He's hopping up and down. He's hopping up and down <laughs> because the court reporter authenticated the testimony as having taken place on February 6th of 2002, when in fact, it took place on February 8th, 2002. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> but this actually worked out in the prosecution's favor because the judge wanted the most reliable evidence of the grand jury testimony. So she was going to allow a redacted version of the audio tape to be presented to the jury. With this evidence, the jury is able to hear Tammy Westbrook testify at the grand jury that Russ Gorman, her son, had called her and admitted to shooting Amy in the head. And remember, this was prior to any sort of cause of death being announced. Yeah, this evidence was huge because, again, we talked about no DNA or physical evidence linking Russ Gorman to Amy's body. So this admission by a defendant as to committing murder is massive. It's huge. And that's why they're fighting so hard to get it in. 
On the fifth day of trial, and after closing arguments by the defense and the prosecution, the judge gave the jury instructions, and at 11.10 a.m., the jury filed out of the courtroom to deliberate on the fate of Russ Gorman. Roughly five hours later, the jury sent word that they had reached a verdict. At 4.08 p.m., the 12 jurors returned to the courtroom, and the judge's clerk read the verdict. Guilty. In an article written by Jeff Inglis and published in The Current and the American Journal, before Justice Nancy Mills handed down Gorman's sentence, Amy's parents were given the opportunity to speak to Russ Gorman. Diane Jenkins, Amy's mom, said, thinking of Amy's last moments, quote, the fear, the pain, the horror, invades my thoughts, wakes my sleep, and breaks my heart, end quote. Amy's father, Dennis St. Laurent, said directly to Gorman, quote, if you ever come out from behind those walls, I'll send you to hell myself, end quote. Justice Mills noted that she did not find premeditation or evidence that a sexual assault had occurred. So rather than giving him a life sentence, she sentenced Jeffrey Russ Gorman to 60 years in prison. Russ Gorman is now 41 years old and will remain in the Maine State Prison in Warren until he is 83. Good. Agreed. The Portland police officer we mentioned earlier, Officer Karina Banke, spoke to us quite a bit about Amy's legacy. Within nine months after Amy was found, her mother, Diane Jenkins, started a foundation to honor her daughter. She wanted to help educate men and women and children of all ages in awareness, prevention, and in the event it becomes necessary, techniques to protect themselves in dangerous or life-threatening situations. When we spoke with Officer Banky, she said, quote, Diane, Amy's mom, took something tragic and changed the lives of thousands of women by starting this program. Something horrific happened in our community and something amazing came out of it. I love that quote. I know. So in 2002, the Amy St. Laurent Foundation brought the Rape Aggression Defense System, RAD for short, to Portland, Maine. It was Amy's ex-boyfriend, Richard Sparrow, who asked Officer Banky to participate in the foundation. And remember, Officer Banky at this point is a very young police officer. She'd only been working for Portland a couple of years. Officer Banky has been a RAD instructor since its inception in Portland, as well as a board member of the Amy St. Laurent Foundation from the beginning. And she also told Kathy and I some sobering statistics. She told us that one in three girls ages 16 to 24 and one in five boys ages 16 to 24 will be sexually assaulted. That's a scary statistic. It's it's sobering. It's sobering. But if you think about, you know, just teenage years in general, they're, they're, basically they're taking teen through college years. And, and it doesn't surprise me when I really think about it. Honestly, the numbers do. But I understand what you're saying. You know, just all the nonsense that happens at that age. And not only that, Kath, but these are only what's reported. Yeah, exactly. That's what's reported. So Rad talks about safety and intuition and essentially that we have to listen to our bodies and hear what they're telling us and not minimize our instincts by telling ourselves that we're being paranoid. You know, and it was funny because when, when we were talking to Officer Banky about this, I was flashing to my sister Helen telling me a story about the self-defense class that she and her daughter took. And so I asked Officer Banky, hey, do you have this in Virginia? And she goes, yeah, that's where it started, in fact. So my sister told me 
that she and again, she and her daughter attended this thing. And on the very first night, they said, we need a volunteer. You step up here, ma'am. And so they took my sister. <laughs> Poor and, Ellen. I know, I know. And they pre- she pretended, they're like, okay, pretend you're walking a dog. She's pretending she's walking this dog. And one of the male instructors comes up and goes, hey, can I pet your puppy? And she goes, no, stop. You know, <laughs> like how they trained her to right, do. Right, exactly. And he goes, he goes, I'm just asking to pet your dog. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. And then he punched her in the side of the head. <laughs> And then, so Helen's on the ground and he's like, see? Oh my God, it knocked her over? Yes. And he's like, see, ladies, I told you, don't apologize for your behavior. <laughs> Helen was like, I cannot believe I actually did that. Like, she's never apologized for anything ever again. Exactly. And one of the things that she also said, which kind of ties in with Officer Banky tells us, you don't know how you're going to react in a situation like that. So Helen said on the very last night, they simulate an attack. And she said, it really is, in fact, scary. Because they're trying to pump your adrenaline up, right? Correct. Well, they're, they're trying to make it as real as possible. Right. And so, you know, everyone's in protective gear. But she said it's still terrifying having a man come at you. And so so she says that she wanted to get it over with because she like you, you couldn't watch the others until you did it yourself. Helen volunteered to go first because she wanted to get it over with. And she said... After it's all said and done, she said she had the most intense adrenaline dump. Her legs were shaking and she could barely walk. Oh, my God. She said it was it was the craziest thing. She was shocked at how even in the setting of a gym where intellectually she knew it wasn't real. She said it was just so terrifying. So she thought the program was phenomenal. When we asked Officer Banky what she thought we should communicate to our listeners, she said, trust your instincts. Don't be afraid to have boundaries. If someone is offended when you ask them to step out of your personal space, you don't want them there in the first place. Agreed. Yeah, no, seriously. But it is harder to do in real life. And so you need to make sure you have that just as an automatic default. Totally. Get away. Exactly. If you're interested in participating in a RAD program or finding out whether it's on your campus or in your community, you can visit their website at rad-systems.com. They're in all 50 states, as well as Canada, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, and Egypt. We'll also be putting their link on our website. If you liked us, and only if you liked us, (laughs) please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on social media. We're at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.